more in Indiana, right? Indiana, Indiana. And welcome to episode 12 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And my name is Bettina. And this week, I am going to be telling the true crime story, and my mother will be telling the paranormal. My mother. Mother. <laughs> will be telling the paranormal story from Indiana. And because you are covering the booze, what booze did you bring for us this week from <laughs> She hates that joke. She hates that joke. Ah. Indiana, they have like 150 different breweries. People really enjoy drinking beer. Unlike you. <laughs> no. Yeah, unlike you. So <laughs> I wanted to do something a little different instead of just grabbing a beer from in Indiana. So tonight, I decided that we are going to make a black velvet. Ooh. It is uh, half champagne and half uh, porter stout beer. Ooh, I like that. And for tonight, we, for the sparkling wine, I should say, not champagne, we're having Corbel, mm -hmm. which is like my all-time favorite. And then we're having this very interesting stout. Now, I don't know anything about porters or stouts. My favorite. <laughs> so the uh, classic uh, wine liquor store helped me, and they helped me choose a Samuel Smith's organic chocolate stout. Oh, my gosh. This is literally, this is literally like three of our favorite things. <laughs> a stout, chocolate, sparkling, all put together in one drink. True crime, paranormal. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Now, I have to be really honest with you. It looks really cool on any kind of site and stuff that I you was go gonna on. Say, it just looks <laughs> like a porter to me. It looks really cool, and I wanted it to look cool. Some sites say to pour first the sparkling and then the stout, and others say pour the beer first and then the sparkling. Well, I poured it both ways. <laughs> I mean, it's like <laughs> in so Beth's glass, she got the stout first, then the sparkling. I've got the sparkling first, then the stout, and it didn't matter. It's all just one dark blob. <laughs> <laughs> Is it supposed to be separated? Yes, it's supposed to be separated. I really don't know how they did that. Wow. So that or I don't follow directions very <laughs> well. All right, so let's taste this. That direction I can follow. Cheers. Yes. Hmm. I don't really know what to think i taste chalk hints of chocolate no the aftertaste is definitely chocolate you can have like a tanginess of the sparkling almost it's almost yeah, like I tangy i think the sparkling takes away uh, any sweetness that there is mm -hmm. interesting it's not terrible but <laughs> i really don't know what to think it's not like i'm not gonna drink this sitting next to me <laughs> it'll be drank all right, this true crime story is another sad one. Oh. I don't really know if there are many happy, happy. true crime <laughs> stories. Let's just be honest here. But it honestly truly shows how far our police and investigations have come over the years. I'm going to tell you about a little girl. Her name 
is April Tinsley. Our story begins in 1988. She was eight years old and was known to be a bit shy. She was petite, blonde hair with expressive eyes. I'll post a photo on social media. She's absolutely darling. She lived in Fort Wayne, Indiana with her mom, dad, and little brother. So April's story I'm going to share begins on April 1st, 1988. Good Friday, actually. April wanted to go out and play with her little girlfriends that lived in the neighborhood. They all lived within about a three-block radius. It had started to get a little gloomy out with storm clouds moving in, so she wanted to bring her umbrella. April's mom, Janet, helped her grab her umbrella, told her she needed to be home by 4 o'clock for dinner, walked her out the back door to the alley, and watched as her daughter walked across to her friend Nicole's house. So I guess there used to be like a big building there, and they had leveled it out, so it was now just kind of like a big field, so she could literally see, watch her daughter walk straight to the house, straight to her friend's house. While at Nicole's house, they decided to run over to another little girlfriend's house just around the corner from Nicole's. They played, they just, you know, being kids, playing outside, whatever, and April realized it was getting close to four, so she needed to head home. She also realized she didn't have her umbrella. She had left it at Nicole's house. So she needed to walk back to Nicole's, grab the umbrella, and head back home to meet her family for dinner. But April never made it to get her umbrella. Oh, she never made it home to her family. April Tinsley was abducted. When dinner time had come and April wasn't home, Janet became very worried. She called April's friends' houses, and after realizing April wasn't anywhere in the neighborhood, she called the police. Mm Mm-hmm. 250 Fort Wayne police and over 50 local volunteers started the search for April that night. Wow, 250 police? It was like right away. Yes. A witness came forward during the search that a beat-up old blue pickup truck was seen in the area looping around. The driver, being in about his 30s, he had face stubble and looked to stop and force a young girl into his car. Oh, no. So what sucks, and like this is just my opinion, you know, you guys may have a different one, but if you see something like that, report it. Report it. Why would you wait until there's a manhunt for a missing little girl and then come forward and be like, oh, wait, I did see this. Like, as soon as I would see that, I'd pick up the gosh darn phone. Right. But remember, that was 88. Mm hmm. Um, Wait have been a lot more programmed yeah. to recognize stranger danger and to recognize things like that. Uh, a, a man forcing a little girl into a truck, perhaps that guy, I imagine it was a guy, thought it was her father and she didn't want to yeah. go. And, some, mean, and some, some places I read said that the witness was actually a little boy. But other places, and most of the places I read, it did say it was an elderly woman. Mm. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, re- I don't know. We don't an know el- what she saw, and then maybe it didn't click that that was wrong until... Exactly, an elderly woman. I mean, wouldn't jump to that conclusion. She yeah. probably, you know, thinks something else. I mean, we think the best of people. So, there's also a, another witness story that I heard was that the truck had a few men in it. Oh, but from the research I did, most sources gave the description that I gave, that there was a, a blue beat-up pickup truck, man in his 30s. So from the witness statement, police put out a sketch, and the Fort Wayne area was put on alert. 
On the morning of April 4th, a jogger discovered the body of young April off Country Road 68 near Spencerville. It's about 20 minutes from where she had been taken from. She was dressed, but upon bringing her body in, they knew even before conducting the autopsy, April had been sexually assaulted because her underwear had been put on inside out. Oh, jeez. The autopsy did show that she had been sexually assaulted and had been killed by suffocation or strangulation. Oh, poor baby. Now again, I found facts of this in a few different locations on the testing of the body. A source stated that the coroner had said she had been dead for 24 max of 48 hours. And another statement I saw in the newspaper, another coroner stated that she had only been in the ditch for a max of four hours. Oh, there's a big difference. So there. she well, so she could have been dead somewhere else, but only in the ditch for four well, hours. Did that second coroner agree that she'd been dead for 48 hours? I don't it didn't say each one just only focused on one thing or the other. Oh, so she had we can kind of come to the conclusion, though, that she had been held up somewhere. And then he had just ditched her probably that morning. So the police did gather the suspect's DNA off of April. Oh, but keep in mind, this is 88. And like we learned in Lorenzo Gilliard's case in Kansas City, it's really hard to run the DNA back then. Fort Wayne, the state of Indiana, actually didn't even have a place to test the DNA. The whole state didn't. So it was sent off for testing in Maryland. They did have the smarts to hold and preserve the DNA, though. When they sent off the DNA to Maryland, they actually sent it with five potential suspects DNA as well to see if there's any matches. Mm -hmm. And actually, all five counts came back as inconclusive. Not a match, but also not a match. So they really couldn't do anything with that. Not a match, but also not a match. It's just what? Not a match. But also not a match. Did I really say that? <laughs> Shit. Not a match, but also not not a match. <laughs> not mm. a match, but also not not a match. Okay, we all know what inconclusive <laughs> is. I think we can move forward. Hmm. It's really crazy, though, how far DNA testing has come in the last 30 years. Yes. The Fort Wayne police are on a manhunt for this man. With no luck in the search, the case doesn't necessarily go cold, but they work the case as far as they possibly can. Until two years later, May 21st, 1990, police are called to a barn in St. Joseph Township. It's about 20 minutes outside of Fort Wayne, around the same area April's body was found. Oh. Written on the barn is a mysterious message. It says, I kill eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley. I will kill again. Now I'm going to show you this picture, Mom. I have a picture of this barn. So it looks to be written faintly first, but then written over darker so that it can be read. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Well, it looks very juvenile. I mean. Yeah, like a kid wrote it. Uh, The spelling, I mean, you know, past tense (laughs) is not there. Mm -hmm. It just looks very juvenile. Right. So what's crazy is that the police do say that this is from the murderer. Now, how they come to that conclusion, I really don't know. I don't know if it's because 
So crayons, it was done in crayon. I was just going to ask you, what was this written in? So crayons were found there at the scene. And now I don't know if like the DNA on the crayons matched his DNA that they had or whatever. But they did come to the conclusion that this is the killer wrote it. The killer wrote it. So I also heard in Crime Junkie, she did this case on uh, the podcast Crime Junkie. And her being in Indiana, she was like super passionate about this case. Mm Mm-hmm. And she stated that a little boy actually came forward as a witness saying that he saw a blue pickup truck driving up to the barn on several different occasions. So it's almost like he was coming back a few times to like rewrite it to make it darker so that people did see it. Oh, how weird. So there is also a rumor that and it's not in the picture and I'll post this picture on our Facebook and Instagram and everything so you guys can see it. But it's also a rumor that it does say, I kill eight-year-old April Marie Tinsley. I will kill again. But that it also says, ha ha, did you find the other shoe? And maybe that's also how the police knew that it was Why the killer was because she only shoe. had one shoe and her body was found. Oh, that's And that's not something creepy. that they like released. So that's kind of another rumor is that they knew it was a killer because it said that. That is totally creepy. So again, the police reach a dead end. The case isn't exactly cold, but they just there's nowhere to go. There's no leads to follow. Newspapers still report on the anniversaries of her abduction as well as when her body was found. A memorial garden was opened in April's honor, and police investigators gave all the information they could. So normally they, you know, hold back some information. Sure. And but at this point, so much time just keeps going by. They just release everything they know to the media so that maybe somebody can come forward. Hmm. So nothing until 2004. Holy 15 smokes. years after April was killed. It was Memorial Weekend. The Hicks family were enjoying a brunch with their family and friends over the weekend when seven-year-old daughter Emily brought something into her mother. In a plastic baggie that Emily had found in her bike's basket was a yellow piece of lined paper with a note on it. The note read, Hi, honey. I've been watching you. I am the same person that kidnapped and rape and kill April Tinsley. You are my next victim if you don't report this to police and I don't see this in the paper tomorrow or on the local news or I will blow up you. Oh my gosh. Other notes similar to this one were found on other little girls' bikes. Oh no way. As well as in a mailbox. The handwriting is the same as the childlike handwriting on the barn. Now, how did the police know this was the killer? This is where it gets sick. Because the notes all came in little baggies. And each of the baggies were used condoms. Mm. And in some were even Polaroid pictures of a man's legs showing him masturbating. The police did everything they could to find this man. They even tracked the film that was used in the Polaroids. 
that's actually why a lot of criminals use Polaroid cameras is because it's really hard to track anything on them. And so nothing. So in the Polaroid pictures, you see a man's legs. And really what the police can gather from it is, duh, it's a man and he's got hairy legs and he is circumcised. But what catches their eyes is his bedspread. It's a paisley design. The colors are green and blue. It's a very unique bedspread. Really? Police canvas local hotels and motels for this bedspread and release a picture of it on the news. If anyone could recognize it, maybe they'd been in somebody's house with it or they made it for him or just something. No one comes forward. Tips are rolling in daily, but they don't lead anywhere. Dead end after dead end. No way. 2009, the FBI's CARD group comes in for help. CARD, it's Child Abduction Rapid Deployment. It's a team of specialists, behavioralists, um, profilists. It's just like a group that's dedicated just to the abduction of children. Mm -hmm. And they have all these different specialists that work within the group. They work with the local police and they release a profile to the community. Their profile states, a white male in his 40s to 50s at this time, living or working in or near Fort Wayne, described as, quote, preferential child sex offender, unquote, which means a long-term and persistent sexual desire for children. He's not married, or if he is, the spouse would have to know his attraction for little girls. Oh, no. He is attracted to girls between the ages of 5 to 10. Yuck. They appeal him because they have not yet reached puberty. He would prefer children over adults, socially awkward, low to medium low income. Most intelligence level can't be very high. Mm -mm. So what's crazy to me as well as a lot of the detectives working the case, this DNA. This man isn't even in coitus. Like he's not, not in prison. He's like, this is a huge crime to molest a child and kill a child. Like, that's just impossible that he could have just done this once. True. And not been in the system for anything. Oh, just not been caught. 2009, America's Most Wanted ran a segment on the case asking for tips. Again, tips come pouring in, but lead nowhere. nowhere. In 2015, a company called Paraband Snapshot reached out to the police of Fort Wayne and worked with them. They collected his DNA put it into their system, and came out with a snapshot, which is a photo that's actually based on his on genetics. DNA. I've seen that. It is totally mind-blowing. So crazy. So they came out with two pictures. They came out with one of what he would have looked like at the time of the case, and they did like an age progression one um, that would show him at the time in 2015. Right. They released both of these photos to the community in 2016, Seeing if it struck with anybody. Nothing. So then in July 2018, Paraben Nanolabs sent their work to genealogist C.C. Moore, who worked with the genealogy site GED Match, hoping to at least match with some potential relatives of the suspect. Oh, yeah. Now, this C.C. Moore is pretty amazing, I think. At the time of this article I read, she had helped solve over 50 cases. With the help of this program. Wow. Actually, since in May 2019, 
the site changed their privacy policies, which is now making it much more difficult to solve cold cases. Mm. It's kind of like just for the privacy of the people that use their genetics. Right, right. On, yeah, their program. So anyway, C.C. Moore narrows the DNA genetics down to two men, one of which is a John D. Miller who lived in Graybill, Indiana, which is about 30 minutes from Fort Wayne. So out of the millions of people, it narrowed it down to two men. To two, one of which lived in, lived in the area. Jeez. Police searched his trash outside of his trailer, which I always thought was kind of which was illegal, but no, it's it's trash, disposed abandoned property, so they can, can go, go through, through it. Trash, yeah. And dun dun dun, DNA matches. Police arrest Mr. Miller as he was getting groceries out of his truck. They read him his rights, then asked if he knew why they wanted to take him in for questioning. His response: April Tinsley. So he admitted to not knowing April. It wasn't planned. He had never even seen April before. He had premeditated taking a child, trolled the streets, saw April, and took her. He had taken her back to his trailer, the same trailer he was living in at the time of the arrest, abused, and killed her there. Then took and dumped her body in the ditch on that country road. After 30 years, April's killer had been caught. John D. Miller was charged with murder, child molestation, and confinement. At first, he filed not guilty, but changed to guilty. He was sentenced to 80 years in prison, his earliest release date being July 15, 2058. Hmm. I'm he's sorry, how old is he? So he's actually 60 now. He fit right into that profile that the FBI gave. Absolutely crazy. Yeah, so he's a very odd-looking man, super creepy. I don't think he's totally healthy in the head. I don't think he's all there. They actually don't allow him to be interviewed because of his mental state. Neighbors said he was kind of a recluse, and like the, the town is really small that he lived in, and they would see him in the diner, and you know they'd say hi or hello, and he would just kind of grunt at them. His trailer was right across from a softball field where kids played. Oh, that's... Uh, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of him now. He just doesn't look quite there. No. No, 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 no. So that is the true crime story in Indiana this week for you, Mama. Jeez, you pick At least she got justice. Yeah, you pick all these kid ones. I'm sorry. I won't anymore. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, creepy. So, I mean, how cra- I mean, though, how like crazy though that it went on that long, and then and this he, guy is—he's not some like intelligent no person who's writing messages on this barn and leaving messages in little girls' bicycles, like you know, trying to get the police to find him. Like he wasn't super intelligent at all. I can't believe he went on that long—thirty years. Yeah. I mean, he, he just flew under the radar. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take a drink. <laughs> and I'm going to Mitchell, Indiana. Mitchell, Indiana. Yes, where there's the Whispers Estate. Ooh. Have you ever heard of this? No. A, I love when you don't hear things. 
You okay. sit back, enjoy this velvet. <laughs> What's this? Black velvet. Black velvet. Okay. Proceed, so, mother. If you drive along West Warren Street in Mitchell, Indiana, you'll pass by a beautiful Victorian home from the late 1800s. Or perhaps you'll choose not to pass by, but instead will stop to visit the old bed and breakfast. If so, you'll come to a sign that reads Whispers a state warning. Due to the high probability of intense paranormal activity, Persons with health conditions and or pregnant women should consider other venues. Are you kidding me? (laughs) We have to stay here. This place, I I mean, is unbelievable with the paranormal. Just crazy. Oh, the first owners of this state were Dr. George and Sarah White. Its second owners were Dr. John and Jesse Gibbons, who moved in in either 1890 or 1901, somewhere around there. Okay. Conflicting stories. The Gibbons adopted abandoned or orphaned children since they couldn't have their own. And two of these children, unfortunately, met tragic deaths. Ten-year-old Rachel and ten-month-old Elizabeth. The story goes that on Christmas Day, 1912, Rachel snuck into the front parlor to peek at Christmas gifts. She wanted to sneak in there and see what she was getting. And she either got too close or she tipped over the candle. She was badly burned. Oh, gosh. And two days later, she died in one of the upstairs bedrooms. Oh, my gosh. Burn marks still remain on the pocket door between the parlor and the dining room. A reminder of that awful Christmas. Yes, still you can see the burn marks on the wood. Oh, my gosh. Several years later, little Elizabeth died in the master bedroom of unknown causes. Then after a fight... And you were mad at me for... Ch- oh, there's more deaths. <laughs> oh, God. After a fight with pneumonia, Jessie, the wife, mother, dies in the same bedroom. And in the 50s or 60s, a man who lived in the house died in the upstairs bathroom. And then in the 70s, a little boy fell down the front stairs and died from his injuries. So you were mad at me for the April Tinsley case, and you're talking about four children's deaths so far? Three children's deaths so more. far? There may be more. Dr. Gosh. Gibbons is a very prominent doctor, and he had his office, as they did in those days, in, in the, the same mm-hmm. place that they lived. So his office was on the first floor rooms. And he saw many patients in his 26 years of practice. And it's very likely that a few of his patients probably died in the house as well. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of deaths going on here. Sounds like it. So the house has been a home. It's been apartments and then remodeled and turned into a B&B. And it is now a well-known destination for paranormal investigations and others interested in just the unknown. Oh, my gosh. I just got chills. (laughs) (laughs) And more on that to come. In January of this year, 2020, 2020, the house was listed. <laughs> did you like pause? And I did. I was like, that? did I say that right? <laughs> <laughs> the house was listed for sale. 
let's buy it for a hundred and thirty thousand dollars oh my gosh for that price let me do a sales pitch here for that price you got not only the house which sits on a quarter acre lot but as you walk into the house you'll see it has a formal entry 10-foot ceilings, a living room, dining room, stone basement, four bedrooms, and two and a half baths, and an unfinished space on the third floor. <gasps> the price also included all the antique furnishings. Oh my gosh, this is a steal! And of course, the ghosts. <laughs> you didn't even have to pay extra for them. So I went on to the. Well, so was it so inexpensive because of the? No, actually, the guy who the guy who owned it was moving to the big city, and he just wanted to get rid of it. Yeah, he was so just done. He just yeah wanted to. So why did he have such old furniture in there? To keep up, to make it you know up with the eighteen hundreds type. So was he doing like tours and stuff? No, it was a B and uh, Oh, so he ran it as a bed and breakfast. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Sorry. Um, and I think they also rent. No, they ran it at that time also as the as the paranormal come come stay. Okay, they, so they were they still give, doing the same they thing. Give he was tours. just kind of done with it. I they gotcha. give tours. And from what I understand, maybe this guy didn't so much run it as a bed and breakfast so much as more a paranormal destination. Gotcha. And the guy before him ran it as a bed and breakfast. Okay, so the furniture was just from that. Yeah. Gotcha. So um, I visited the Whispers Estate Facebook page just to kind of find out a little bit more about them and discovered that the house was only on the market for two months. As of March, wow, it had been bought but will continue as a ghost hunting venue. For just last month. Yeah. That's crazy. It was on the market for two months. Not, e- I mean, so just. So why is it called Whispers? Oh. Why is it? <laughs> now, I'm going to move on to some paranormal events. So she's going to leave us hanging with that I'm, question I'm and move on. Leave, <laughs> I'm going to leave you hanging. In 2006, the owner at that time, Van Rainier, decided to renovate the house. And this is when strange things began to occur and activity has increased ever since. The estate was not always known as Whisper's Estate. It was only after guests reported hearing disembodied voices whispering in their ears. I don't know why I'm getting so many chills with this that story. That it was so named. Oh my gosh. Van recounted some of his own experience to Wave 3 News. He said, I started hearing noises. I had my mom on the phone until I got my ass out of there. <laughs> there was no way I was going to stay in there by myself. <laughs> He went on to say, when you hear footsteps, you pray that they're a child's footsteps. They're the little pitter-patter of feet, maybe about, I don't know, 70, 80 pounds. However, um, (coughs) I'm getting tingly just thinking about this. This is him still quoting. However, there's another set of footsteps that happens in the house. It's more like loud stomping. It's very heavy, very menacing. Oh my gosh. Oh, people have reported hearing voices as they walk through the halls. EVPs have picked up many entities in the house at one given time. Many women have reported a male whispering in their ear and then being grabbed and groped. Oh my god, that's so scary. Is that perhaps Dr. Gibbons? <laughs> that's awful. 
with a doctor. We should be able to trust the doctor. There is a report of a group of visiting women. This one is eerie. Who made an effort to reach out to Rachel by leaving a doll in the bedroom where she died. As they settled into their rooms, they were obviously staying the night, they heard something bouncing down the front steps. On the landing, they found the doll that they had brought for Rachel. Oh my gosh. It looked and smelled freshly burned. What? Well, how does something smell burned? Okay, really? Never mind. <laughs> Think before you speak, Beth. Think before you speak. Ay, ay, ay. Mom, please proceed with your story. I'm very intrigued. <laughs> Many visitors reported smelling baby powder. Oh, they smell baby powder. <laughs> Shut up, Mom. Many visitors report smelling baby powder and hearing a baby crying throughout the house. Elizabeth, perhaps. Mm. The guests sleeping in the room where Jesse Gibbons died hear labored breathing and coughing. Remember, Jesse died of pneumonia. Double pneumonia. So labored breathing and coughing. Some even wake with the feeling that someone is sitting on their chest. So it's hard for them to breathe. Oh, gosh. The most common activity in the room, and this is not uncommon. This has been reported so many times, is the closet doorknob will jiggle for a few moments. Stop. And then the closet door will slowly open. Okay, that's like a horror movie. In one report, this happened five times within a couple of minutes. What? (laughs) Wait, so it happened five times in a couple of minutes? The doorknob jiggled, and then it opened, and then she closed it again. And and then then whoever was in the room, yeah. And then moved it. What? Yeah, I wouldn't have the guts. (laughs) Sorry. Guests that have slept in the third floor room have reported horrible nightmares. Many visitors have said that they've seen a shadow. This has been seen so much that it actually has a name. It's called Big Black. (laughs) Very clever. (laughs) Someone really thought hard about these names whispering. (laughs) People have claimed to see the beds or couches shaking. And while others have said that while sleeping on so said beds or gouges, they have felt them violently shaking. What the heck? Oh, as I said before, there's been smells of baby powder, but there's also been the smell of a pungent cologne or aftershave. Ooh. Yeah. Cigar smoke, hmm. rancid meat and cabbage. Ew. Dirty <laughs> medical bandages okay. and more. But how do they know what that smells like? Oh, gosh. It's like rotting flesh almost. I mean, dried blood and yeah. Got it, mom. Moving on. (laughs) We don't need to dwell on this. Of course, you didn't know it smelled something burned either. But bad smell. Got it. The house had been visited by paranormal groups, psychics, and has been featured on TV shows on the Travel Channel and Sci-Fi Channel and HGTV. Documentaries have HGTV? Been what did they do? Did they remodel a room or something? <laughs> like, <laughs> maybe your house needs to be remodeled. The whole room just creaked. It sounded like the room was closing in on it. Like us. it cracked. Documentaries have been made about the house and radio shows have featured the home. Many agree that there are things that bite, growl. Bite? Mm-hmm. 
and push in Whisper's estate. But why take their word for it? Whisper's estate used to offer because it just, remember, it was on the market. Right. And it just got bought and they're doing a few renovations. Yeah. Um, like putting air conditioners in. Oh, good for them. So <laughs> it used to offer flashlight tours and then mini investigations, which would start at midnight and run until three or four, which cool. would be super cool. cool. And like the flashlight tours were like an hour and only cost like a dollar. What? Yeah. That's but awesome. That doesn't happen now. No wonder he sold it. <laughs> According <laughs> to money on a dollar. their website, which is whispersestate.epsy.com, there have been these uh, flashlight tours and stuff have been discontinued for the present, but will be available in the future. Cool. The website says. What is being offered are overnight visits, $300 for the weekday like the weekday night okay, for an additional $30 per person over 10 people. So for 10 people, be $300. That's not bad. And then $400 for a Friday or Saturday visit. Uh, let's book it. Let's book it. <laughs> let's, let's book it. Book it. Let's, let's book it. The one thing that was interesting is um, there were some psychics there that said that there were uh, graves in the backyard. Are um, they... There really are graves, or the psychics. The psychics said that there were graves, but there was also a unmarked huge grave that body parts and things, you know, the doctor threw things like that in there. Have they looked? Have they dug it up? I don't know. I think it's just one of those lore things. Dig it up. Look, (laughs) dig up your yard. Exactly what you're talking about. Come on, proof. Give it to me. That'll sell a couple paranormal investigations if they really did find body parts. Go dig it up. Find the proof. I don't think they need any more proof. This place sounds very, very haunted. So that is Whisper's Estate in Mitchell, Indiana. I wouldn't mind the little pitter-patter of children's feet or the baby powder. I mean, kid ghosts don't, like, spook me, but they said there's, like, a malevolent. Malevolent. Thank you spirit there that's where i would get spooked oh kid spirits freak me out really yeah because you know the devil can disguise himself in many ways oh don't so i really want to tell a personal story okay so we investigated this uh it used to be an orphanage and it's like said that the kids would run off and go hide in the bunker and it's where they would keep like canned goods and flour and stuff for the orphanage and the kids would run off there so they didn't have to do their chores. Mm-hmm. And so it's said that there's a lot of kids spirits in there. And so we were, we were in there doing EVP sessions and like flashlight stuff. And I think it was probably the coolest experience I've ever had with any paranormal investigation I've ever done. But it literally, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and it literally felt like one of them grabbed onto my leg. You told me about this, yeah. And just held onto it. And, like, it, you can kind of just envision this little kid grab. I, it was incredible. I can't even tell you because you feel this pressure on your leg and kind of cold, but you know that nothing's there. So I really tried to, like, keep my cool, and I just had that instant mom moment of, like, squatting down to try to – 
talk to whatever was there, just comfort whatever was there. Mm-hmm. And you just can kind of envision this kid being like, what are all these people doing in here? I'm just playing in here. But then the people that were leading the investigation started asking questions like, hey, come and turn on this flashlight and flash it like twice or once and answer our questions. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I felt the pressure release on my leg, the flashlight started answering questions. So it was almost like this little kid was walking and answering questions about like, are you a little boy? Are you a little girl? Are you hiding down here? Are you playing? We brought you a teddy bear. Do you want it? Like instead, like the flashlight would start answering it. Right. But I, I've been on a lot of paranormal investigations and it did not feel negative at all. It literally just felt very, I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't negative. Not no. evil. No. No, evil. no. And so that's why I think that'd be really cool. But if there's a mean spirit present, then I guess you really wouldn't know if the kid spirits are good or bad. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't dig the jiggling doorknob and then the door slowly opening. Well, that's creepy. That's <laughs> just creep factor. <laughs> I don't know. A hundred or some. Um, so anyway, yeah. Oh, good story. Cool. I guess you're not going to tell us where that's from, huh? Because we no. are going to go. We're going to go. I'm taking yes. you there, and we are going to go do an investigation there because it was probably one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. So, anyway, wow, you guys got two paranormal stories. <laughs> <laughs> two for the price of one. So, like I've been doing with all the episodes, I will post pictures from... Uh, I'll post a picture of John D. Miller and April Tinsley, and I'll also post a couple pictures from the creepy freaking estate, Whispers Estate, (laughs) from the creepy estate, Uh, but you can find those pictures on our social media, on Instagram and Facebook, and that is Killer Hangover Podcast. If you've been to these places or you have another creepy story you want to share with us, please email us at killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. We love all the reviews we've been getting and the shares. Keep it up. We love it, love it, love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. We really appreciate it. So next week, we're going to tell you some stories from kind of all over. Yeah. The true crime happened in three different states. So Beth, who's doing the paranormal, got to choose from North Carolina, Florida, or Georgia. Ooh, it'll be fun. Yeah. So, well, mine isn't fun, but (laughs) (laughs) anyway. Do you think people just like fast forward through the true crime to get to the paranormal part? (laughs) I don't know. Is it like stomach turning? Like, or do they enjoy it? I don't know. Well, I enjoy listening to true crime stuff. I watch yeah. Dateline all the time. <laughs> My husband thinks I have a problem. <laughs> Perhaps I do. <laughs> oh, I'm right there with you, Mom. I'm right there with you. This was fun. Yes, it was. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. Love you, kid. Cheers.